fuck's wrong with you? This is you want to know what's wrong with me? If I don't get out of that fucking borough of Queens, I'm going to take the chief hostage. <laughs> and he says, you want to come work for me in the A3 in my rep unit? I was like, you, you get me transferred to Brooklyn North. I'll be over at your house every day to walk your dog and wash your car. Uh. He's like, you don't need to do that. You just make some gun collars and robbery collars. I'm like, if I can do that in Long Island City, you don't think I can do it on Knickerbocker Avenue? He's like, I know you can. Three weeks later, the transfer comes down. When no one will touch me with a 10-foot pole. Joe Esposito is the guy with the 11 football. Right. Wow, that's great. And he brings me to the A3. But the day that the order comes down for the transfer... Here we go again. I'm in federal court watching my partner, Patty Regan, be convicted of perjury. Here we are, the palatial estates, <laughs> Austin, New York. Uh, me and my partner in law enforcement, Bill Cannon, with our guest, a legendary police officer and author, Michael O'Keefe. What's up, buddy? I, I yeah, like the sound of the legendary author. You know, I was just commenting off the air that, you know, usually these podcasts are much funnier, but this one's pretty damn serious, right? I guess the nature of this needs to be serious. He doesn't want us... My, you know, listen, I, I, I'm, there, not right? trying, I'm not going for goofy laughs or trying to be like, ha-ha, <laughs> funny. I, wherever the story takes us. And, and it's a fascinating story. I think it's remarkable. It's a great story. Just to, what to, a piece of New York history, too. Right? It's a piece of New York history. It just goes to show you that we're living... It, it just... It just keeps revolving, and it's the same shit all the time. Politicians lying to us, media lying to us. Um, you know, this this knocking of law enforcement all the time, depending on who's in the position of power at the time. And uh, the fact that you can get caught up in something like this as a young man, uh, just trying to go out there and do the right thing, take guns off the streets, save lives, and that you can be put in this position so other people can get to wherever they want to, this fictional... A place they want to get to in political power. It's it's disgusting, and it, it doesn't seem to be changing at all. And I'm happy that you you made it out of there. Um, you know, in, in that particular situation, even though your buddy Regan, you know, he, he came out, he went, he did a year, uh, but now he sounds like he th he's thriving. So God bless him. Um, yeah, but he's doing great. He's a grandfather now. Well, but you um, you went on the, how many years did you wind up doing on the police department? I did a total of uh, it was twenty four and a half. Oh, so you stayed past the twenty? You oh, I did I, I never would have left if I didn't get hurt. Okay, I just uh, how'd you get hurt? It was a compendium of injuries. Uh, pretty much. That's a good word, man. That's a writer's yeah, word. Well, there you go. You know, St. <laughs> Francis Prep strikes again. So uh, compendium. I would yeah. never. That would never come out of my mouth. I don't think. Everything goes arthritic. Arthritic. Yeah. yeah. Given enough time. And, and you uh, lifted a lot of weights in your youth, right? I lift. I played a lot of football. I lifted a lot of weights. I played rugby in college. Uh, shit breaks, and you think when you're young, it heals so fast, you think you're a vampire, mm -hmm. and it's always going to do that. And then you get into your 40s, and the joke is on you, because it's not healing anymore. Yeah. It's starting to require surgeries now. But uh, basically, my problem is I treated my body like a torpedo. You yeah. know, my whole career. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't stop. You were an action star. A real yeah. action star. <laughs> a stuntman whose body didn't heal. <laughs> None of them heal. You ever see old stuntmen? Oh, okay. Ooh, they don't walk so I, good. I, I wonder what Rob Gronkowski, who just retired from the Patriots, he's going to be a cripple. He's, he's going to be on a walker within oh, five years. Oh, my God. You know, you see the hits he yeah. took and the knee yeah. injury. Well, and what's the... nice for Rob Gronkowski is modern medicine. He's going to be swapping joints out left and oh, right. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, I mean, if you look at, uh, 
You talk about all weightlifters that are staying young forever. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. He's got two fake hips, two fake shoulders, two fake knees. He's got a metal implant in his ankle. And a and, quadruple uh, bypass. And a quadruple I, bypass. I, I did security for him one time, and yeah. we went into uh, Armani, and he wanted to buy a, uh, a suit jacket. And he took a size 56 jacket. Mm. For a guy that weighs like 235, mm-hmm. that's gigantic, right? You know how expensive it is to get a suit when you're... Yeah, that wide like that. Dimensions. I, I haven't been able to buy a suit off the rack in uh, in years. I have to do separates. I got to get a jacket. Yeah, and uh, and I got to buy my pants separate. There was a guy behind the counter at Armani, and he was a bodybuilder. He's yeah. all pumped up. And Arnold looks at him. He says, "You're pumped up." <laughs> the guy was so excited, yeah. man. Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. said to me, "I'm pumped up." <laughs> so you mentioned, Michael. You mentioned you were at a barbecue mm-hmm. with your future wife mm-hmm. in Long Island. Everything's going great. Mm-hmm. And she had a cell phone, a mm. job cell phone. She gets a call from somebody on a rooftop. Yep, her partner, Pete West. And he says, why am I on a rooftop in Washington Heights, and why are they burning your boyfriend in effigy? <laughs> so, What are they burning? That's supposed it's basically to be a dummy with a sign around its neck that says O'Keefe. It's oh, in really? a police uniform. <laughs> they got your French name. French blue shirt. So they had oh, yeah, name. they had already painted oh, yeah. my so name. Who was the CEO of the 3 4 back then? At was the time, it was Nick Estaville. Oh, Estaville. Yeah. Did the police shooting originally make the newspaper? The day, first day after the shooting? The, was the next the day, July 4th, in the Daily News, there was a, uh, a, a, a inch and a half column, uh, just as an afterthought. That's all there was. So there must have been one. I'm trying to think of the initial person or group of people that were that were that were very, very upset about this particular shooting and they decided to start being vocal about it. Did you ever get to the bottom of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 actually, it's well-known. Uh, the drug cartel up there, they, they, uh, the guys that ran all the drugs, uh, the big bosses, they called themselves the Dominican uh, Bodega Association. Uh, but they were a drug cartel. Uh, is they, that still a thing up there? I don't know if, if it's still a thing. Because they also the had, boss that, still they had run that, the that livery cab, that guy that was yeah. always a political guy. Was his name Mateo or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was involved well, they were in mules. The politics up there. Yeah, yeah they were mules. Uh, the, the livery cars were mules. Yeah. So the bodega owners... They weren't really bodega owners. They owned the dirty bodegas. Okay. There were plenty of clean where, ones. All right, but where the drug dealers hung out in front of yeah, yeah, well, they were Bodega all Bodega for heights. you people from the suburbs is delicatessen. Delicatessen, <laughs> right. But uh, ultimately what it was is they saw an opportunity now. they First of all, they had the mayor who was going to take their side, whatever they wanted to do. They saw an opportunity. Why? Well, because they stole the election from But because they're an association now. They're, uh, yeah, they were. They were they're passing themselves off as a legit. As a legitimate political organization. Yeah. And he hated the police too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But largely, he needed their support if he was going to get reelected. Who was Kiko to the community? He was a drug dealer. That's all he was. Was he one of those, um, what was it, Hobayero? What was that word you used? Hibaro? Hibaro. Yeah. Was he one of those? Yeah. He was, was he from, here, living here, or did he come here for a purpose? He came here from San, San Pedro de Macaris, where all the drug dealers and hitmen right. come from, and the shortstops. Well, Mike McAleary uh, wrote uh, a big uh, story about that. He, right? he didn't play any baseball, though. Yeah. Um, and uh, specifically came here to be part of the drug organization. And he was actually a mid-level manager. He was the guy that would coordinate all the spots on the block and all of the spots in the building. Mm -hmm. And he was the protection. 
He was uh, basically managing it from the street. How um, many different locations on one block can you get drugs from? I mean, at, at that time, probably more than 100. On one block? Yeah. Yeah. But they all fall under the same organization. Well, the interesting thing about it is one of the mistakes that the, that the cartel made, they ceded control over what was going on in the streets because they just sold you the product in bulk. They didn't work out franchises for who had what spot right. here. It was basically open country. They let them fight it out. fight it out amongst yourselves. So they started mm-hmm. And that's the reason other, yeah. why you had those murders. Yeah. So it was, you know, you know I, I don't no want to totally get out of order, but I remember part of this whole thing that uh, exacerbated and caused the riots was that someone said that you planted a gun on Kiko Garcia. And uh, just a funny footnote to that was Dinkins and two of his flunkies went to Kiko Garcia's house and his mother said, that's impossible that that was his gun. Here are his guns. She showed him like 13 guns yeah. he had in yeah. the apartment. Oh, really? And no. I mean, how embarrassing is that? The mayor goes there. Yeah, that's believable. That wasn't his gun. He has 13 guns. Here's his guns. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> how pathetic. Yeah, yeah you right? can't even make that up. That's good for a movie. Well, yeah. ostensibly, they got everybody in the neighborhood raised up to go out and riot. Right. And then they went a step further and they started importing people for $50 a day to come up and riot. Sounds like Al Sharpton. Importing them from where? Yeah. From downtown to just All over them? the city. And whoever would come up, they'd Queens, give Brooklyn, the Bronx. Hey, come on over. They're going to give us- Attention rioters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they, yeah, they're going to give us $50 in Presidente beer. Yeah. Let's go have fun. And a lot of guys came over and they basically were shopping. They were taking down windows to go shopping yeah. on Broadway. Um uh, but in any event, that's the, the the riots now are kicking off. So this and, is a day after the shooting. You're at this picnic. Yeah, so yeah. a day later, a day and a half later, you realize. Well, the media, and they were really the biggest problem here. The media gets wind. Even back then, huh? Yeah, the media gets wind that shit's going on up there, and now they come up into a neighborhood they had never been before because they were afraid to come there, and they come up in droves, and everybody who wants to come in front of a microphone and bash the police, specifically me and my anti-crime team. They put a microphone in front of them and a TV camera. Now, the, the allegations were outlandish. They should never have been even entertained. They shouldn't have ever made it onto the TV. Yet they're still making the well, news. what had occurred... Do you remember any specific uh, news reporters that were the worst with this? I'm actually friends with one that that did a horrible job up there, but I forgive her. So I'm not Penny Crone? No, Penny was good. Penny was always pro cop. Um, yeah, she was. Yeah. Um, now I'm not going to mention this right, his name because I like her. All right. Uh, but pretty much all of them fell into this, and they got taken advantage of, and they got used. Uh, the next day, uh, now that the media is reporting on all this, and you know what, I have to take a step back because the reason why these outlandish allegations are being reported almost as fact immediately, as soon as they're made, without any evidence or any any secondary sources, is because a couple of months previous to that, uh, there was going to be a big scandal in the mayor's office. And he formed the Marlin Commission to take attention away from it. So what happens in the Marlin Commission? Guys that had already been caught and convicted of corruption, in the police department. Oh, Michael Dowd. And, yeah. Go and tell their story to the national media now. And they're 
basically lionized as whistleblowers. Michael Dowd was so fucking bad that everything became possible. Right. Yeah. Now the idea that I'm uh, that well, me and my team are land pirates that are murdering people and robbing drug money and selling drugs and money became believable. It's believable. Yeah. yeah. You know, supposedly I'm a millionaire, which you know made me like Janet, my wife, is like, "Where's all this fucking money? You live in a basement <laughs> apartment." I'm like, "I know, right? <laughs> I can't even afford an oil change." I'm like, "God." <laughs> but in any event, that's the reason. Uh, now the media runs with it, and every allegation leads into another, and it just starts snowballing. Snowballing. I'm I'm public enemy number one, basically. For let me months. let me ask you something too, because. Obviously, at this point, and I don't know the exact timing, the police department knows the truth. And yeah. they, at some point, they went above and beyond to show this, that this guy, Kiko Garcia, was a super dirtbag. I remember Manhattan North Narcotics had some video of mm-hmm. him with, like, kilos yeah. and guns like yeah. this because they, they had a case on him. Mm-hmm. But how now were they um, sort of... Did anyone tell them not to put that stuff yeah, out? Yeah, they got shut down. So they got shut down. So the It politics, got out there and then it was gone. So maybe you talk, it went pretty high up then. We're saying don't oh, came put- came right out of the mayor's office. Oh, what okay. happened? All what right. happened? Ray Kelly was the first step at the time. Right. Okay. Lee Brown at this point, out of town Brown, yes, is I already know, an yeah. absentee police commissioner. He hasn't been in the city in five months. And he wasn't coming back when he found out two summers in a row, I got riots. Fuck that. I'm staying in Texas. So Lee Brown is gone. Ray Kelly is in charge, and Ray Kelly tries to do the right thing because he gets briefed. He's Basically, he's the titular police commissioner at the time, and he makes a statement to the Post in an interview that says, there's a lot of hysteria here, but there is no evidence that the cop did anything wrong. We got a decorated young cop who's made a ton of gun arrests Mm -hmm. and a convicted felon who was wanted by the police, Mm -hmm. and the gun was recovered on the scene. There's no reason to believe that anything untoward happened here. And the next day, Dinkins told him, shut your mouth. And all information came out of City Hall from that day forward. The police department wasn't allowed to, uh, to put anything out. So they were steering it against you and in the favor of yeah, this uh, yeah, Kiko yeah. Garcia. Yeah, yeah. And then he had his press conference. Um, now, at the time, the drug dealers had already put, put up two alleged witnesses two females that claimed to have seen me uh, murder him in cold blood. But like we talked about earlier, there were no apartments on that first floor. Right. And that, was, nobody l- and that was later proven by the families. What they alleged they saw and from where they saw it from was impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, they'd and have to come down the stairway. They were shown to be liars anyway. Yeah. But that's only a what, certain amount of people could fit in the stairway and look down at the right, same time. Right, but they were. They yeah. claimed they saw it from inside their apartment. But the big thing was the, a lesson from this is all you aspiring detectives, when they ask you to do a canvas, don't ever put no results or negative results. Interview the person and have them tell you exactly where they were sitting, what they saw, when they saw it, mm-hmm. because two detectives that went there and did that canvas did an outstanding job, and their DD5s or complaint follow-ups of the interview of these two women basically cleared Mike. Mm-hmm. Basically cleared, and in fact... They wanted to indict these two, and the Manhattan DA's office refused to indict them for well, only, perjury. Only one testified in the grand jury. The, okay. other one, the other one got scared, realized, all right, they got me lying, and she didn't go anywhere near the grand jury. Right. But the one and Wana, what were those statements? Uh, Wana Madera is the only one that actually made it into the grand jury, and she claimed that I beat him to the ground, 
laid him on his stomach, and shot him three times in his back. Which the evidence obviously showed was yeah. totally I mean, false. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but here's the thing. Before the whole thing blows up and, and, and it becomes the Washington Heights riots, the night of the shooting, two detectives from Manhattan North Homicide, John Lafferty and uh, Mike Sheehan, come up to the 3-4. They had been in a homicide downtown. They were done. They stop in. They see Huey Drain. And they're like, you need anything, Huey? And Huey says, nah, it's a bunt. No issues here. He goes, if you want, you could do a canvas for me. And they're like, okay, we'll go do a canvas. And they go out with a Polaroid camera and their notebooks, and they knock on every door, and they document everybody they speak to. Both of these women, who later now come out on the media and claim to have watched me assassinate this man, mm-hmm. tell the detectives and allow them to photograph her. Nah, I wasn't home. I was out shopping. Wow. By the time I got here, uh, there was nobody in the building but police. The other woman said, I was in Brooklyn at a birthday party. That would be Juana Madera, who later testifies in the grand jury that she watched. Right. I, how she saw it from a birthday party in Brooklyn, right, I don't right, know, but right. that was her story. But uh, you know something? That's good investigation, and you, you see that... Uh, you know, how important that is. It's, it's basic investigation. Yeah, but, but it's how important it but is. But it was very but important. Sometimes not basic yeah. investigation isn't always done correctly, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that saved your ass. Well, the, the other thing that happened, I think Jerry Giorgio found uh, the guy that hosted the birthday party mm-hmm. with the timestamp dated video from the party. That's oh, great. she was there? Just dancing. Good. That's oh, excellent. Yeah. So, yeah. So, but so, a great job was done. Let me ask some also. There was some other political players Back then, specifically, I remember Cardinal O'Connor uh, was not your friend during Cardinal that. O'Connor, Ruth Messenger. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Specifically, the, what did uh, what, were, what were Cardinal O'Connor's actions towards you? Well, after Dinkins and his cronies got up and basically said that they're going to they're going to give justice for Jose Garcia, uh, which basically means they're going to have my head on a stick. Um, They've already agreed to pay for his funeral, to send him back to the Dominican Republic. It's basically a royal funeral uh, with taxpayer money. But at this uh, O'Keefe bashing, um, O'Connor now gets up. And he goes on for about 15 minutes uh, talking about the environment of uh, misconduct in the police department and that he will use every means at his disposal to ensure that there are no Mm cover-ups. Nobody said anything about fucking cover-ups. Now that's the only thing people hear. Meanwhile, I'm a rookie cop, and I got no juice at all. Nobody's covering shit up for me. No, of course not. They're going to throw me to the wolves before they're going to cover anything up. But now, because his eminence suggested that it was possible, that's all anybody believes. What are you going through emotionally right now? Uh, like you said, you're a rookie cop. You got six years on the well, job. I was actually at my mother's house at this time because I'm trying you're to talk 20, 20, the 20, 29 years old? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm at my mother's house, and uh, my shoe was off. It was going through the TV screen. And Janet stopped me. Said, Did you go outside that's yet? Your, that's your mother. No, I couldn't. I had the media camped out on my front door. For me to get out of my house, I had to go down through the basement, sneak out the back, and hop the fence in the backyard. Mm-hmm. And then wait for somebody to bring a car around for me. Hmm. And you're watching, you're watching this unfold on the TV. Mm-hmm. 
The lies. Mm -hmm. Talking about you. And my brother says... Were they there? I'm like, the only one in that fucking hallway was me, Garcia, and the ghost of Elvis eating a corn dog. Nice. <laughs> I said, nobody was there. And he says, can they hurt you? I said, it depends on how well they can lie. Because I already saw the handwriting on the wall, and I fully expected to be indicted for murder. All right. Did you even think something like that was possible when you were in the academy? No, of course not. Nobody thinks it's possible. It's, it's on level when you're in the academy. You don't realize how politically and uh, morally fucked everything is. That's really what it was, and it started at City Hall. Um, but uh, it was bad, and, and it stayed bad, and every day the headlines were just worse and worse and worse. And uh, you feel my defensive? wife's birthday was July 11th. Wow. So this is a week away. Already had our favorite restaurant, or her favorite restaurant, was... Uh, the seashore in City Island. I was going to take her there for a birthday, but yeah, obviously I can't. I can't leave the house. Right. <laughs> I can't. Well, I'd have seventy-five. You go to the Bronx. Yeah, to the Bronx. The media would follow me right onto the island. Um. So now I got to cook. I'm Mofongo on one eight one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm in. I know. In I know. Queens. A nice I, uh, place. Yeah. Now, now I'm, I'm getting calls. In the meantime, I get calls from the squad and from Intel that supposedly there's a hit team coming down from Massachusetts to smoke me. So there's been so, a there's that been makes a, you feel good. Yeah. Right? yeah. So now they give me a radio, an Intel radio, and the thing doesn't work. I mean, it's the biggest fucking joke in the world. The police department has such great yeah. equipment. They're saying you know? they put a hit out on you. Yeah. And and my protection, they put a sector car from a 104 on the block. Two hard charges were in that car. Oh yeah. I grew up in a 104. <laughs> there are no hard charges. <laughs> so so uh, the 104 is a two hard sleepers. It's a very quiet precinct, yeah. surrounded mostly by cemeteries. Yeah. yeah. So although it's getting busier now, and and if you really wanted to, there was a lot of mafia to fuck with in the 80s. Uh, but in any event, I'm gonna make her down. We just got engaged like a month before this, in the Bahamas, and uh, at the we at the courtyard terrace. Uh, and I'm going to duplicate that dinner. I'm going to cook it on the stove at home. But I got to get out of the house to buy the ingredients. So I sneak out the back, call my friend. He drives my car around. And now I, now I go down into Ridgewood and I, I hit the butcher. I hit the, uh, the Edwards Superstore to get all the fresh vegetables. And I make a Chateaubriand with a vegetable medley and uh, Irish coffees and berries with fresh cream. I just duplicate that dinner to a T. And... Uh, <laughs> I kind of dropped the bomb on her. I said, listen, this thing uptown, it's not going well. It's not going to end well. If you had any thoughts about bailing, now, now is the time. <laughs> and to her credit, Janet got up and poked me in the chest and said, fuck that shit, Michael O'Keefe. If I have to marry you in an orange jumpsuit on Rikers Island, I'm going to marry you. They woman, can't man. beat us. That's a good woman. 26 years later. So, but yeah. That's a great woman. I always get choked up when I tell that story. <laughs> yeah, I can see. I can see. Um, and that's why I asked you about that. That's why I wanted to go. I was so curious about what you were going through. I mean, you were a young kid. I mean, especially nowadays, you know, like what, 28 is like, uh, you know, uh, like the new 40. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If, yeah. By the time you were 28 but you know, you, back then, you were a man, but still, this job. 
And it, it helped because your girlfriend was, uh, who had turned out to be your fiance, your wife, was also on the job. So she understood mm-hmm. a little bit, but she didn't understand the full impact yet. Yeah, she had really had no realization of the, of the shit that I was doing. But you know something, Mike, with, with all of this shit, you always wonder, like, where is truth come in? You know what I mean? And does truth matter? Truth is all that should matter. Well, interestingly know? enough, there is a hero in this story. I mean, apart from the detectives in the DA's office and the detectives in the 3-4 squad and the homicide squad, who, I mean, they did a fantastic job. Right. They turned over every stone. They didn't hide anything. They just brought the evidence out. My hero in this was Robert Morgenthau, because he's an elected official. And the easiest thing for him to do, for his own personal interests, is to indict me for murder, and just kick it to state Supreme Court and let them figure it out and just wash his hands of the whole thing. Bruce. uh, But he didn't. He conducted the longest-running, well, not the longest-running, but the most extensive grand jury investigation in the history of the New York County District Attorney's Office. And uh, because it was a grand jury and the man has integrity, things were not leaking. So I stayed public enemy number one pretty much through the month of, uh, of August. And then some stuff started to leak out. I'm pretty sure the PBA put some yeah, good yeah, information sure. out. And the story started to turn around. Um, somehow they were getting some of the grand jury exhibits and the evidence and the testimony uh, with coming out in the paper and they were getting refuted. So it wasn't all one way. And to be perfectly honest, people have short attention spans. They're really tired of looking at the same footage. Right, right. Uh, they don't care what's going on in Washington Heights. Dinkins is losing his mind, however, because if the riots don't end, the Democratic National Committee is going to take away his precious convention that they're going to hold in New York for the first time. Well, the Democratic, uh, this happened on July 3rd. The riots started happening shortly thereafter by the next day. Mm -hmm. The riots lasted for three days, and the DNC was coming in on the 7th. Mm -hmm. Wasn't that the, the plan? We're going to have the, the... No, the convention was later than that. It was on the 7th when they basically told him, if these riots are going on, we're going to Philadelphia. Okay. And he lost his mind. And that's when he told the police department, that's enough of this. Nobody gets to vent anymore. The and, riots. And, and, the riots. Yeah. and the riots. And the riots. And the riots. And his only reason for doing that, he didn't give a shit about me. He didn't give a shit about Washington Heights or the rest of the city. He wanted his convention. That was his big coming out point. Right. So, okay, you know, whatever's important to you. Uh, but ultimately, the, uh, it's in early September. The grand jury votes, and uh, I get a heads up from one of the investigators in the uh, DA's office who tells me, it's going to be no true bill. It's unanimous. Um, he says, but you've got to sit on it for a while giving the police department and, 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 and the city an opportunity to make plans case in case, there's, again. case it starts up again. Yeah. So it's almost a week I'm sitting on that information, and I'm thinking, he fucking lied to me. I'm going to jail. Yeah. But uh, ultimately, I, I was down in court on, uh, on the day uh, that the announcement came out, and uh, I got to watch the press conference from a table in the back at Four Leanies. Down that back must feel good. Yeah, yeah. I'll have uh, a double. Yeah. <laughs> Is there but, a big uh, round of applause? Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, what happened? Well, Morgenthau gave the press conference, yeah, he right? He gave the press yeah. conference, and it was uh, it was extensive. He uh, turned basically turned me into super witness. 
So all of those defendants that I had locked up over the months who were looking to go to trial because they figured... Your case was going to be... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fresh painted. meat. I'm fresh gonna... meat. They're going to get me in cross-examination. Right. All of a sudden, I'm super witness, and they all started pleading guilty one after another. Wow. So, cool. All those guys yeah. would have gotten yeah. off. But David Dinkins, being the reasonable man he was, the day before they're going to release... Well, the day before they tell me that I'm going to be acquitted... They go over to see Dinkins in his office, and the investigators sit down, and they explain to him the impossibility of my guilt. Right. They lay out all the exhibits. Mm -hmm. He throws a fit. This is disgraceful. This will not stand. Mm -hmm. The city will not accept this verdict. You better take a piece out of that cop. Mm -hmm. He wants me done, doesn't care that I'm innocent. Because that doesn't matter. It's the expediency that matters. Yeah. So uh, Morgenthau reminds him, I'm also an elected official and I have my own budget and go fuck yourself. In so many words. Um, so Dinkins doesn't get his way. Right. But he's uh, not a very forgiving man. He's not a very thoughtful man. He's not an insightful man. And he, uh, he's not done with me. Or my anti-crime team. Because he walks as a political favor over to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, and he wants my anti-crime team done for civil rights offenses for all of those gun arrests that we made. And basically, all of the alleged witnesses who civil rights we violated are all represented by the same three lawyers from the same firm in the Bronx. They're drug lawyers. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So they parade them into grand juries, into federal grand juries, and they all tell their story. And... I'm not sure how many times they got blown out of court because the grand jurors are like, no, they're criminals. I don't believe them. Right. Uh, but they kept going at it and going at it and going at it. They tried to set us up. It's at the point now where we're, I'm already cleared. I'm in the 108 squad in Queens. How long is all this taking? <sighs> Six months, a year? Yeah, maybe two years. Well, the, 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 fed, years. the feds were looking at us for at least three or four years. And they, uh, and they convened a bunch of grand juries and never got a true bill. And what they did, they got desperate. And they actually brought in uh, one of my team members, Patty Regan. Yeah, I remember that. And they put him on the stand and they questioned him over the space of eight hours over innocuous nonsense. And he got flustered and he guessed sometimes when he just sort of said, I don't remember. Uh, sometimes he was mistaken. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he didn't remember because... It wasn't important to him. That it was important to the feds because the they had the phone call on on, on tape. The old mm -hmm. perjury trap. They perjury yeah. trapped him. Yeah. And Patty ended up doing a year in fed. Wow. And they went to him every week. The FBI went to him while he was doing his time up in Kentucky in the Daniel Boone National Forest and asked him, you want to flip now? What pieces of shit they are. Well, he sent them Everyone always way. wonders why real cops hate the FBI. You oh. Know? You know, it's just so sickening. You, you know, if, if, if you read my novels... Yeah. Uh, I treat the FBI with all the respect that I think they do. I worked extensively with them on several investigations. And uh, you'll get a good idea how I feel about the FBI if you read my novels. They're not happy with me. No. But I don't care. <laughs> well, uh, before we move on to the novels, I just want to... Those riots, they lasted for three days. You're watching all this stuff on TV, right? The riots lasted for longer than three days. Really? 
the heat of the riots were three days. Okay. But there was sporadic stuff going on for the better part of a month. Burning cars up there. Burning cars, throwing uh, bricks through windows. Firing shopping, Uzis in the air, right? Firing, firing guns in the air. Uh, there's, a hit out for, there's hits out for you. Yeah. Drug cartel hits. Yeah, yeah. When can you come out? I end, up getting, I, end up getting, a, I end up getting sent back to work probably third week of July. And uh, they obviously can't send me to the 3-4. So um, uh, they put me in the 2-4 in the borough. Yeah, I remember you there. And uh, I was supposed to be in the wheel, uh, on the wheel. But uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to jail, so I'm not real agreeable to my assignment. And, you know, I'm getting into arguments with captains and telling them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> so I don't want to be picking up phones in the first fucking place. Uh-huh. And what are you going to do to me? I'm going to fucking jail. Uh-huh. So they, they wouldn't let me pick the phone up anymore. Mm-hmm. So I split my time in the two four, uh, either sunbathing on a roof <laughs> or lifting weights down in the gym because I'm, I'm going to the can. I got to get big. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so <laughs> they really were really happy for me when I finally got into the detective bureau and they put me in Quint. <laughs> you were preparing for prison. I was preparing so you, for you prison. you went to the 108 as a white shield? Yeah. To the RIP unit? Yes. But doing your job. Uh. Yeah, and I did... Uh, it was the last place I wanted to be. I actually did a contract. Uh, cocktail uh, Jack. Jack Walsh? Yes, yeah. Jack told me they're not going to let you go to the 4-6 squad. I'm like, well, I want to go there. He goes, all right, I'll get it done. So the transfers come down now. My entire group uh, going into the, into the detective bureau. The, How did you get into the detective bureau, though? After well, I, I had actually interviewed for the detective bureau months before the shooting. So your name came out? I up. was going there anyway. Okay. If I hadn't gotten into the shooting, I probably would have been in the 3-4 squad by September. All right. But uh, I got the contract now to go to, uh, to, go to the 4-6 squad. You're still living in Queens? Yeah, but I was going to buy a house upstate. Okay. So, you know. Because well, that's a commute. Yeah, well, you know, I was, the, I was actually looking at houses in Throgsnake. Uh, All right. Over by Silver Beach. That's nice area. Yeah, I almost bought a house over by Silver Beach. But... Uh, So the contract's done. I'm going to the 4-6. And sure enough, the orders come down, and I'm going to the 4-6 squad for 13 minutes. <laughs> and then the telephone call comes in from the police commissioner's office, and I am reassigned to the 108 squad. Wow. Oh, Fuck. Long Island City. Let so now you're dip. not moving upstate no more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... <laughs> I, now I look into it. I'm like, all right, who shot me down? Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's Chief Salvaggi at the time. Yeah, I just made chief of patrol. Yeah. He was a chief of Manhattan North when the shooting went down. Yes. And uh, but uh, Mario says, I'll look into it for you. And uh, he liked my mother. They got along very well. She thought he was wonderful. So uh, and I guess he was to her. But uh, he ends up calling me at home, laughing. He goes, you're not making friends. I don't know if you're aware of this. Mm-hmm. He goes, but uh, yeah, that got squashed personally by the police commissioner. I'm like, why? I says, well, I'll tell you what he said. Mike O'Keefe will work in the 4-6 squad when monkeys fly out of my ass. <laughs> there you go. Well, they didn't want you to go to a place where there was a They didn't want me shooting more Dominicans. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, really yeah. what it was, yeah. which is kind of funny because even going to the Sleepy 108, I kind of still lived under the same black cloud. I kept running into miscreants with guns. Yeah. And I almost smoked two Dominicans from a commercial robbery pattern. Wow. On a car stop. 
So I was like, wow, that wouldn't have gone over well. So when you got back to the 108, you were in the squad now? Yeah, in the 108 squad. The RIP, actually, it was a RIP. They okay. had the, the robbery. Rip How was the, the 108? Good place to eat, good place to shop, good place to drink. Uh, not a great place to be the police because there wasn't much going on. But I still managed, you know, to do good work and learn my trade. Right. Uh, but then my 18 months were up, and the five guys that I went into that squad with all got promoted, and I didn't. You didn't so get your gold I, shield. I had to wait another year. My gold shield got well, So it wasn't in the... No one would ever tell me. Because of the federal investigation. Yeah, sure. Okay. So, but, when I did finally get promoted, um, the very next day... Another uh, order came down backdating the promotion to the day it was supposed to be. So you got so your I money. got all, I got the, the back time, the back money, and uh, yeah, yeah. As hard now, as they made it. During all of that time, did uh, did the uh, feds ever personally come to you and try to get you to testify? No, they were being very careful and cagey about that. And the way it was explained to me was at the time. Um, I was still being regarded in law enforcement circles as a as a hero. Yeah. All right. Uh, they have to work with local law enforcement agencies, and the reason they have to work with law enforcement agents, local law enforcement agencies, is because if they didn't, no one would go to fucking jail. Yeah. The reason why the FBI has federal task forces in every major city in the country right. is because somebody's got to put handcuffs on somebody. Right. Right. And they're nitwits. They're not doing it. Right. So they're very careful and you cagey know, about going after me. This goes so counter to what the public thinks. The public thinks mm. like the FBI, these godlike law enforcement yeah, creatures. Can, yeah. But, and, well, in, in my books, I think the way I describe it is they couldn't find their own asses with an ice pick. Yeah. So, <laughs> is the way I phrase yeah. it. Well, they're college grads. A lot of them uh, yeah. uh, with accounting degrees. Well, you see that guy Strzok. I mean, that's a guy you want to smack, right? The guy who testified, Strzok, who was the one who yeah. ran the investigation right. against Trump. They have no real uh, ties to the community. They don't no. have any CIs. The, you know who their CIs are? Cops. Yeah. That's where they go they to flip. for the information. Yeah, people yeah. they flip. Yeah. So you're in the school. Oh, I wanted to ask you about the talking to the troops. Um, didn't you do a press conference after the shooting? I didn't do a press conference, No. no. I was interviewed by the Post. I was later a guest uh, of the PBA. Oh yeah, you were. Yeah, that's rally. what I'm talking about. For the rally, you were. You Which were asked I, to speak to the, to I, the troops. I told Phil Caruso, I don't think this is a good idea. And what was that rally for? That was for you or for? No, at the time, and it was never going to pass. Dinkins was pushing a civilianized CCRB, mm -hmm. and it was never going to pass. Right. This was one of those things that people, the politicians, are going to make noise, but they're never going to vote for it. Mm -hmm. For some reason, they panic and they pull the trigger and they have this rally. And every time in my career, every time that we had a rally, it blew up in our faces. If you remember the incident with the Larry Davis shit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Just, you know, we end up we end up being the villains and lambasted for two weeks in back of that. And I told I told Phil Caruso, I'm like, this is not a good idea. Cops do not fucking behave themselves. There's going to be alcohol. They're going to be all raised up. They're yeah. going to be pumped up. It's just, I just, it's, I don't think it's going to be good for us. And I was right, but before <laughs> before they they went crazy and took the bridge, uh -huh. I end up getting 
carried on people's shoulders up onto the podium. So now I'm stuck on the podium and they stick a microphone in my hand and I took the opportunity to thank everybody who stood by me. But that's as much as I wanted to have yeah, anything sure. to do with it. It was... Uh, you know what I remember was a, a great story and you could correct me if this is right or wrong, but I remember Dinkins went up to the 3-4 to talk to uh, an outgoing platoon. Yeah. And Estevillo said to the platoon before he got there, no one say a word, don't say anything. And Dinkins went and addressed the Ford, and he didn't say 10 words. And Tommy Barnett, who was the PBA delegate from the 3-4, yeah. screamed, Why did you pay for that drug dealer's funeral? And Dinkins was, You're a liar. And he goes, No, you're a liar. And he was yeah. screaming. In fact, I said, That was the greatest thing I would have loved to have Well, actually, that. Dinkins was yelling, That's bullshit. That's bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So then the newspaper, uh, the newspaper reporters ask him, uh, did, did you, you, cur- did you curse? Did you curse at the cops? So I never cursed at the cops. Well, isn't this you? <laughs> so, yeah. Whatever. And they try, I think they tried to transfer Barnett, but he was the delegate. They, they did couldn't. transfer him. They transferred him. That lasted about two tours. Yeah. And then he got sent back. That's great. But, uh, what? Uh, how long did you stay in the 108 squad? I was in the 108 squad. Believe it or not, my transfer to get out of there, engineered by Joe Esposito. Uh, es- um, it was August of 1995. And uh, about the month before, I had made friends with Joe. He was the CO at a 3-4 now, when they were in the process of doing the split. Um, and uh, he sees me at this racket in New Jersey. And I guess I got a puss on. And uh, he says, what the fuck's wrong with you? I says, you want to know what's wrong with me? If I don't get out of that fucking borough of Queens, I'm going to take the chief hostage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't belong there. Yeah. He laughs. He goes, you want to come work... And at the time, he had just gone back to the 8-3. He was the CO of the 8-3. Uh-huh. And he says, you want to come work for me in the 8-3 in, uh, in, in my rep unit? I was like, you, you get me transferred to Brooklyn North. I'll be over at your house every day to walk your dog and wash your car. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like, you don't need to do that. You just make some gun collars and robbery collars. I'm like, if I can do that in Long Island City, you don't think I can do it on Knickerbocker Avenue? Uh-huh. He's like, I know you can. Three weeks later, the transfer comes down. When no one will touch me, with a 10-foot pole. Joe Esposito is the guy with the 11-foot pole. Right. Wow, that's great. And he brings me to the 8-3. Um, but the day that the order comes down for the transfer... Here we go again. I'm in federal court watching my partner, Patty Regan, be convicted of perjury Wow. by the feds for something he never did. And you know what was so egregious about that, too, was not only did he get convicted and have to do a year, they sent him to Kentucky, if I'm not And right. that was, yeah, and that and was they, intentional. That was more punishment, yeah. That was intentional. There's, there's no way, there's no to, way to get state. to Kentucky except with a connecting flight. Right. And they're very expensive. It's in the middle of the Daniel Boone National Forest. So even if you go there, you have to drive two hours from where all the hotels are just to get to the prison. So we ended up, I went, ended up visiting him twice in the year that he was there. Bunch of us, uh, you know, managed to get out there. What's but, he doing uh, today? He is doing very, very well. He owns a business with his brothers. They're uh, carpenters and construction guys. They do uh, office interiors in Manhattan. Uh-huh. So, like, when a big corporate entity buys out a floor of, uh, say, for instance, the Chrysler building, they rip everything out, and Patty and his brothers go in there, and they sheetrock it. They do all the custom cabinetry. They're... Uh, Patty's an old world artist. Yeah, he, and well, he was a um, off the boat. I yeah, 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 yeah. From uh, I mean, his sister worked in a two four. Yeah, they, they got Teresa. that pound of yeah, flesh yeah, though. Yeah. They got it from somebody. Yeah. Disgraceful, yeah. right? Yeah. 
Well, they, you know what? They, they spent $6 million. Somebody had to go to jail. So they framed somebody. It's despicable. It really yeah. is. It's so is. horrible to think that that's the way the government works, like the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if they're coming after you, they're going to get you, man. You saw well, the clowns during the whole thing. What, 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 it just keeps happening over and over again. Yeah. What I've learned to pay attention to, when I hear someone who's supposed to be in authority drop a phrase like the greater good, mm -hmm. the fucking's coming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, somebody yeah. that's going to throw somebody to the walls. Right. Some, yeah. They'll because sacrifice. it's about the truth or it's nothing. Yeah. Right. So. That's what I tried to explain to uh, a friend of mine when we were talking about uh, police work. And he was talking about macro. And I'm like, no, no, it's micro. These, these are the words people are using. I said, you got to take every single case of so-called police brutality one at a time. Mm -hmm. It's not a question of uh, general numbers. These are all specific incidents. You can't lump them all up in the, and all they're all the same. And right. one person's going to pay the penalty for that. Right. If if every cop is not getting indicted for those particular cases, doesn't mean that the next one is going to be handled any differently. It's a it's separate, uh, its own investigation. But who suffers for this, really? The public, right? When you tie the hands of the police. And yeah. The police aren't yeah. going to want to do their job anymore. Yeah. Or won't do their job anymore. Who's who suffers? It's the public, obviously. Yeah. Look at Chicago. So it has a chilling Chicago's effect on like, cops. Yeah. Chicago, they, no one's doing their job yeah. there anymore. No, would you? No, absolutely not. Um, and he's, you got first grade the whole time you were in RIP, or did you uh, go to no, major I, uh, case? I went. No, I didn't go to major case. Uh, I pretty much understood if I was going to stay on the job, I was going to uh, probably my career path would have been to the homicide squad. And then from there, maybe to the terrorist task force. My old partner, Johnny Moynihan, right. is a sergeant in terrorist right now. And uh, That seems to be the way to go these days. It's, uh, you know? I mean, you, it's God's work. Yeah, well, and also, it's, if you, you know, want to work and once you retire, that is such a stepping stone to a great job yeah. in the private sector. Yeah. You know? When did you start thinking about writing? Was it while you were on the job? When I was in the eighth grade. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, Miraculous Medal. I had an English teacher. Her name was... Uh, in Wintergerst. And she was smoking hot. <laughs> so she got my attention. That'll always motivate you. There you go. And it was my first introduction to creative writing. Did she tell like, you hey. what a great writer you are, Michael? Actually, she told me, like all my teachers, she told me I was a disobedient pain in the ass. It's <laughs> <laughs> not smart, but not manageable. Uh, but I, I discovered that I liked writing. She was an English teacher? Yeah. yeah well, she actually is the head of the English department at St. John's University now. Wow. Dr. Wintergast. I uh, saw her again for the first time in, all, in like 40 years uh, at our 40th reunion from Miraculous Metal, graduating. Wow. That's and great. Uh, she still looks great. Uh, but that was my first introduction to creative writing, and I kind of stuck with it. And Do you remember I, the paper that you wrote that got her attention? I didn't get her attention. No, I mean that liked it, that she liked it. I don't know that she ever liked it. Well, what made but she you made I you, liked it. But you, you made it. her write. She made you write. It was part well, of the course. It was part of the course. It was a creative writing course, okay. and I liked it. I thought it. maybe that she had encouraged you and said, oh. I'm sure she did, but I didn't, it doesn't stick in my memory. But you liked right it. Now. You liked writing. Yeah. I liked writing. So you were going on. Uh, you and then when I went to high school, I had opportunities did to. Did you keep journals? It. Yeah. Well, my notebooks were journals. How many of those, through your whole career? Your I whole just life? found one from high school, actually, in, in a storage uh, facility. It's pretty cool. How, it was, it was like, that cool it was looking like back Brett, in it? It was like Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> what do you think about it when you look at it now? <laughs> I was laughing. I was like, boy, I didn't know shit about Dick. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, all through high school, uh, St. Francis Prep, it's a creative environment. We had uh, poetry journals, uh, magazines, newspapers. Uh, so I got an opportunity to submit poetry and written work there. And uh, when I went to college, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to be. Um, started out taking accounting. That sucked. Uh, and then I started on a, an English major program at Iona. But I ended up leaving. Uh, bartending and rugby kind of got in the way of my sure. academic progress. Uh, I don't regret it. Uh, from there, I went, believe it or not, to the School of Visual Art in Manhattan. I was an illustrator. I was an artist. Oh, wow. And I so did, you've always had this creative streak. Yeah. I actually did the, uh, the cover of my forthcoming uh, short story book, uh, 13 Stories, uh, is a, my own drawing. I drew it. It's a charcoal rendering of a spooky tree. Uh, Let me check it out. Yeah, I'll show it to you later. I have it on my phone. And I'll send you one when it's published. So let me ask some. So you, you have this talent, this inkling for writing. Yeah. Is it from you want to write about your life or you want to write creatively? I just or, want to write. Yeah. I want to write creatively. Short stories? Yeah. And obviously your life comes into it. Yeah, when I was in, in, in college, uh, while I was at the School of Visual Art, I realized fairly quick into it, I don't want to be an artist. But they had a really good creative writing program. So I loaded up on English courses and doing that. And I got a handful of short stories and plays and poems published in student journals. Uh, I left there, and now I'm going to go into the police academy. But uh, my investigator is not going to send me in right away. Uh, I kind of... Moving violations? No. I, I was just... Kind of jerked off for about two years. I kept, yeah, I'll come up there. You I'll, sure I'll you wanted yeah. the job. I'll yeah. Say, yeah, I don't yeah. want, you know, I don't want an educational hold. And uh, now she decides she... Uh, now you're going to make you wait. She's going to make me wait. And, uh, well, the other issue, uh, <laughs> when I go up to see her, <laughs> I show up, I'm wearing, you're talking about 1984. I'm wearing the $700 suit. Uh-huh. Uh, i got a bunch of earrings in my left ear, including a, a big diamond stud that's bigger than her engagement ring. <laughs> and I got a brand new car out at the curb and no payment books. Mm-hmm. And I got no declarable income. Mm-hmm. I'm a full-time student. She's like, you're either selling drugs or you got an ass kicking off the books job. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I don't sell drugs. <laughs> I was bartending and I was doing construction right. off the books. Uh-huh. I had more money than I knew what to do with. For that six months, I had to wait to get into the uh, into the academy. I had to actually get on the books. It cut my income to a third. You were hustling. Well, I had to pay you the taxes. Say my parents just gave me a lot of money. They gave me a big allowance. You, that, that didn't work. I didn't live with my parents. Oh, okay. No, that was well, never getting over. Check. <laughs> that was never getting over. But uh, so you were writing plays too, huh? What kind of plays did you write? Like one act plays. Um, How many characters in them? Five or six. You know, with speaking parts, obviously you're going to reference more characters than that. Um, how about is it, screen how is it to write um, dialogue? You're good at that? I think that's the strength of my writing. Um, I think can, that's uh, one of the hardest things to do. It is one of the hardest so, things to do. The um, banter in Shot to Pieces is really well. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Between the, um, you managed to capture the banter between police officers uh, in, in the middle of handling a case. Because when you read or watch TV shows... They're always talking up police work, but 
you don't do that. You could be handling a homicide and talking about the Mets yesterday. Yeah. How they fucked right, up the right, game. Right, right. Yeah. And you captured that. And that's what I, re- I appreciated a, a lot about uh, Shot to Pieces so far, that what I've read. I really enjoy it. Well, I intentionally, I wrote Shot to Pieces as much as it's a police procedural. I didn't want it to be about the police work. I wanted it to be a human story. Right. Because there's a, the, at the time that I started writing it, it was a real bad time for cops in this country. Uh, and the thing that really galled me uh, was when did the you way- start writing it? <sighs> Let's see. Uh, I published it in 2016, in the summer. I guess probably 2014. I started writing it. How long did it take you? Two years to get it into publication. I probably wrote the thing in uh, in like seven or eight months. Wow! Like the first draft, but then there's the editing process, which is that's torturous. It's torturous, imagine, yeah. Right? Like, it is. Killing it is. Babies. You have to be. It, yeah, you're killing babies. You have to be honest with yourself yeah, this, and uh, and trust I love it, other but people. It's not fitting. <laughs> Right? Yeah, I love, yeah this, exactly. I love this story, yeah. but it doesn't. Well, they call fit it actually. Anymore. Stephen King calls it "killing your darlings." Yeah, because when it's time to cut, cut to the bone. It's a bit like killing your own children, but it must be done. <laughs> okay, Steve. Yeah, he sold a few books. Yeah. I'll listen to him. <laughs> you know, Mark was talking about, and I really appreciated your um, your characterizations in the book and and the dialogue. And to me, one of my favorite favorite. Um, but probably the best police show I think of all time was The Wire, and for the one of the reasons was I caught the language of the street yeah. perfectly, yeah. just perfectly. You know, like when I listened to the language they were talking, I was like, that was so great, that was so great. You know, and I mean, you have a lot of that in your book, yeah. but that's the key because you know when you're watching Law and Order and you're watching SV, you're like, oh come on, this is a Hollywood bullshit version of police work, you know? Yeah, and yeah. it's not the well, real street. That was that was the other uh, other goal uh, of Shot to Pieces. I'm watching them, uh, not just the media, but the, the former president of the United States, suggesting that cops are uh, running and gunning and trying to kill black people. Mm-hmm. That we get off on that. And it's counterintuitive. It's against human nature. And nobody ever, you never see it in a program, uh, you never read it in a book, the incredible psychological cost of having to actually take someone else's life. Right. It's devastating. It is, and it's been called uh, by no less an authority than uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossberg, who wrote the definitive uh, textbook on, on post-traumatic stress disorder. It is the most psychologically repugnant thing that you can do. Right. And many people can't do it. They choose their own death rather than take somebody deadly physical life. force against right. somebody else. Right. And uh, the suffering that each individual cop goes through having taken someone's life. And I know personally, I mean, I almost strangled my wife in our bed having that nightmare again. Um, if you knew what I knew, if you lived what I lived through, you would understand that it's nonsense. Right, right. Nobody wants to kill anyone else. And if they do, they're a psychopath and they shouldn't have been cops in the first place. Absolutely. But there are so few of them. It's a stringent screening process. Sure. So I wanted to, I wanted to bring that out. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to illustrate from a very personal standpoint, what post-traumatic stress 
is actually like and the fact that it's present every time you're in a shooting. And, and it compounds on itself. The lead character in the book suffers a lot from that. Yeah, yeah. And I actually have Patty's... I think he's only got three kills in the book. Or like a total of three. I only have one, but it was in a dozen gunfights. And the thing that causes the stress oftentimes isn't the act of actually taking someone's life. It's the responsibility of knowing you may have to. Right. And that's what beats down on the individual. It's people that suffer PTSD in combat. It's because they spent days and weeks and months in a combat zone knowing that today I got to kill somebody. Today I got to kill somebody. Today I got to kill somebody. And they may never kill anyone. But that responsibility. Or just knowing that. It takes its toll. Yeah. Just knowing that if you're put in that position that. You're going to do the right thing, you know, that you're going to... One of the nice things with police work is we work with partners. I have a responsibility to them. So I might, I might be willing to sacrifice my own life to not use deadly physical force. Right. But he's not in on the deal. Sure, <laughs> I yeah. have a responsibility to him. To save his life, yeah. So, you know, you do... Hopefully what you should do. And then sort it out later. How therapeutic is the writing for you? It's, it's magnificent. It's, uh, that's the other thing. When, when you read Shot to Pieces, you're going to see that Patty is, uh, I don't want to say deeply disturbed, but he has been deeply disturbed. And he has a pretty, uh, pretty grim upbringing uh, and experience in his early life. Uh, That didn't uh, come out of the vapor. I'm I'm experienced in those things, and 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 it's reflected in Patty Dark. Was it autobiographical? Largely, okay. a lot of it was, but not all of it. Not all of it. What it is is pretty much everything that occurs. If you look at the, it at the plot, everything occurred. But I might have added some drama, and changed some facts just for the purpose of advancing the story or just making the story. It's a novel. A it's a novel. It's a novel. Right, right. It's, uh, but all the police work is, uh, is genuine. It's all stuff that actually sure, occurred. Sure. And the people, the, uh, the other, the peripheral characters, uh, the useless guy in the command and the, and the squad and the good guys, those are, you just change their names, right? Oh, uh, to be perfectly honest, most of the useless guys uh -huh. are usually composites of like several uh -huh. useless guys. So I'm, you I'm, took the like, best useless, yeah. the most useless part of each yeah. of them qualities. and created oh, one character. Size. Yeah, yeah, but... Uh, one useless, one empty suit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so but it's with the with the writing, and obviously, I, I think that every cop that <laughs> that's done twenty years, twenty five years, whatever, has hundreds and th thousands of stories, and not every cop can put it down on paper and explain and 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 really, and I can see that being. Like you said, it's very therapeutic. Yeah. Telling your story, I mean, that's that's an amazing thing. And having people read your story is well, another thing. It, it's not just my story. It's a compelling story, hopefully. Right. And if I do my job, it's a compelling story. But the whole point, you could put a, together a book of, uh, of war stories. And they're a book of war stories. Right. You could do the same. I could do the same. Anybody who's had this kind of experience can do the same. But what does that book mean? It doesn't mean anything. In order to 
tell a compelling story, there has to be a hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And basically what a hero's journey is, is you have your main character, and he fights his way through, or she, through challenges, and they're fundamentally changed by conquering these, the, these challenges. And by the end of the book, they're a different person than how you introduce them. And it's an arc, it's a character arc, and it doesn't always have to be successful. You could have tragedies right. where the main character, okay, doesn't overcome it, and he dies. But that's the hero's journey, and it makes it compelling. It's my opinion that every cop that sits down and writes that collection of vignettes is shortchanging himself because if he looked really hard, he'd find his own hero story and he could make a compelling book. Is it but true some guys can't do that. Right. It's, you know, that's a What's your process thing. like? Uh, I mean, do you have a set amount of hours that you write every day? How many hours do it's you... It's never set. It's when I get the urge. Uh, I'm on my oh, computer. Yeah, I'm on my computer uh, every day looking at my emails, and when I get done with that and social media and I'm bored, I open up whatever I'm working on, and I start working on it, and I make progress. And, uh, you know, sometimes I get to the point where, like, well, I don't have... I'm not feeling it today. I don't have anything else to say. But as long as I'm in there and the story's flowing and it's growing and it's moving forward, I'll keep writing right. and just go to the gym later. And then, and then you realize a whole day has gone by and you're still in your pajamas. Well, interestingly enough, the book that I'm trying to get published right now, it's called A Reckoning in Brooklyn. It's, uh, it's the prequel to Shot to Pieces. Patty Durr appears in it as a 17-year-old. It's a 1979 Bushwick story where I reimagine the Pizza Connection case. I wrote that in three weeks on the recliner in my family room. I had blown out my uh, Achilles playing baseball, and I went back to the gym too quickly, and I gave myself an infection. Oh. So when I went back to the, to the surgeon, he's like, I'm not giving you a boot. I'm not even giving you a bandage. You're going home, and you're going to sit with the foot reclined for three weeks. <laughs> I was like, shit. So I basically sat there with my laptop, and I had an idea that I wanted to write this story, and it just, I, had, I couldn't even get up to go to the bathroom. I had to use a walker to get to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So pretty much I sat there 8, 9, 10, 15 hours a day writing that novel. And granted, it was the first draft. I mean, I've edited it probably 20 times already. But that book is ready to go now. Mm -hmm. It's uh, just waiting for, a, for an agent to buy it. Wow. But yeah, that was, uh, that was three weeks. You got a writing room? Yeah, it's called my kitchen. Oh, so you just sit in the kitchen? Yeah. I get bothered by the dog. I get bothered by. The were you kids. writing when you were on the job? Right? I'm sorry. What? Were you writing when you were on the job? I actually took a break from writing when I was on the job because um, who has time? First of all, yeah. particularly in a detective chart. But what I uh, what I did, and I, I kind of pissed off my supervisors. Early in my detective career, I had, a really, I had a really crazy robbery case in Queens. And it was a good case. Got the guy, got the machine gun, got everything. But some of the old-time detectives gave me some really bad advice. They're like, the less you write, the better. Mm -hmm. Bare bones, don't put anything in there. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And a year and a half later, I'm on the stand with my thumb in my ass, couldn't looking remember. like an idiot because yeah. I couldn't remember anything. So from that day forward, and I got a conviction on that case, thank God, the DA did a great job. Um, and I threw myself on the mercy of the jury. You know, mea culpa, I, I got some bad advice. I was a rookie detective. 
and they they ended up liking me and hating the defense counsel who was trying to beat me up. <laughs> so from that day forward, my DD5s, I wrote in the form of narrative stories. Like they read. Yes. Like stories. Yeah. And uh, my, one of my first bosses in the bureau, Gary Leone, who was a sergeant in the uh, A3 rep, came out into the office and said, <laughs> why do I always need a thesaurus and a dictionary to read your fives? <laughs> I'm like, uh, it's a funny story. I bet it isn't. Knock it off. <laughs> and I told him why. And he was like, all right, keep doing it. I used to write my, my cases, my fives yeah. like that as yeah. well. Well, see, the nice thing about it is the end result of it was the homicide that I am actually, uh, is the centerpiece of the novel that I just finished at home called Burn to a Crisp was an awesome triple murder in the 18th. <laughs> I like your titles. Yeah. They're always based on the homicide case. Uh -huh. So, uh, and Shot to Pieces actually works two ways. Uh, it's uh, metaphorically what Patty's done to himself, self-destructing his own life, and the homicide victim is basically ambushed and shot to pieces. Uh, a reckoning in Brooklyn, the mob's going to get it in that one. You know that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Burned to a Crisp is obviously it's an awesome triple murder. Um, so, um, wow, I completely lost myself there. What were we talking about? We're talking about writing your process. Um, the reason why I asked you about the sitting down, do you have a room to write in? Well, I, when I retired, I, for two years, I, I wrote every single day. And I had a mm. process. I'd wake up and it was like I mentioned about, mm. you know, you go outside and it's five o'clock in the afternoon, you're still in your pajamas. I remember going to the gym and thinking, what am I doing here? Nobody's paying me to do this. I'm I was writing for a magazine at the time. I was writing a solo show. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't go to the gym for any other reason but longevity. Because after what the city did to me and mm -hmm. the police department did to me in 1992, mm -hmm. it's a moral imperative for me to live to be 117. <laughs> They're going to pay me. Forever. They're going to pay me. I, this is how old I want to get. I want to get so old that every month they send two detectives from the pension section out to my house <laughs> to put alive. my check in my hand to verify I'm still alive. And I already told my kids, I changed my will. Uh -huh. I used to have a DNR. And I, it occurred to me, I'm like, nah, screw that. And I told my son, I'm tearing this up. Resuscitate me. Keep me alive by any means necessary. The money will already be going into your checking account. Uh -huh. I don't care. I'm not going to be there to complain. Just keep me alive. I had a joke about that. He said, I didn't want a DNR. I want a DR. Do resuscitate. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were looking for, uh, an, an, I guess, another publisher or editor for, not an editor, a publisher for your well, new book. The, the way that uh, think, it's very like difficult. One that you do on one by one or you get a deal? Uh, I like actually, a three book deal, let's say. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to sign a three-book deal. I already have the bones for a three-book deal to complete it. I could complete that. Well, I'm not going to tell them how quick I can complete it. But what I need first is an agent, and an agent to sell me to Big Five Publishing. Because mm -hmm. once you get hooked up with a publishing house, now they're paying for the publicity. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll, to be honest, I'll be a, a, an agent's wet dream because I'll do anything. Yeah. Just tell me what to do. I'm work. a neophyte in the, in the writing world. I don't know how to pu how to publicize. I'm learning things. There's so many things you have to know, right? Yeah, there's yeah, too many yeah, things. Yeah. How about and screenplays and getting? Uh, let's say for for example, do you have a, a screenplay version of Shot to Pieces? 
Mm, I do not, but I can convert it to a screenplay very easily. Uh, what I am working on now, one of my short stories called Tick, Tick, Boom, which is going to appear in the short storybook, uh, I converted into uh, a screenplay for a, uh, a pilot. My friend that did the, uh, made the uh, book trailer with me, we collaborated on that, and we basically came up with the first episode for a series. Mm-hmm. Now what I have to do is storyboard the rest of the series. And then do a treatment for what we expect it to be. And then one one or both of us are going to probably try and shop it to like Netflix or HBO or something. But I think it would make a very interesting series. And which one is that? The Boom Boom? Tick, Tick, Boom. Tick, Tick, Boom. You know something, Mike? There's no rush to do any of this stuff. You got all the time in the world and you're writing and you're doing it, you know? You're right. But my personality... Yeah, I'm the same. It's got to happen yesterday. Right, right. I'm the same the, way. And my wife is like, you got all the time in the world. You're retired. I'm like, no, yeah, no. Bill, I'm 56 years old. I right. hear the uh, clock yeah, ticking. Right, right. Like, I don't Bill, have time. Bill calls me every day. So, what do you think we should do about promoting this thing? Uh, we got to get more listeners. And I'm like, all right, listen, relax, easy. We're promoting it one step at a time. <laughs> and every day it's like talking to it's like, no, it's going to be okay, Bill. I'm typing. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, what I discovered now getting into, uh, into publishing. Uh, the only people in a hurry are the writers. Nobody else is in a hurry. Like I'll send, I'll send the manuscript out as a query, and you read right in the uh, in in the agent's uh, profile. Turn around in about six weeks. It's nine months later. They haven't gotten back to me. Mm-hmm. And you reach out to them on email. They tell you yeah, they're still looking at it. I'm like, really? No one does anything quick in the entertainment yeah. business. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think quickly. eventually you're going to get to a point where you're going to start. Uh, Pitching, you're gonna have these ideas. I've done that already. And you're gonna, if they like an idea, yeah, but they should be coming couple, to him. He's good. They should be coming to him at this uh, point. You know, uh, unfortunately, that's not There's the way. The, good people. It's not the way the world works. Yeah. You know, until yeah. you, you, and you, you, you know. <laughs> well, Michael mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, he's a neophyte, and the reality is, when you get the position of power and you become like the little guy from Elf. That was a, the actor. You know, remember the scene where he comes in and he's got that little book that he leaves behind and mm-hmm. it's got all his stories in it and he's just pitching the ideas? Because once you pitch these ideas, if, some, if they like them, three of them, hey, you know what, give me a three-page on that or give me a, a ten-page on that. You know what I'm saying? And then before you actually start developing a whole screenplay that nobody's going to buy, you're already getting paid for it. So here's your three-page, mm-hmm. here's your ten-page, here's your log line. You know what I'm saying? Give me the rest of the money and I'll finish this for you in a certain amount of time. And uh, I, think, I think you're well on the way. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the, the short story book. I love short stories. Um, what, what, what Are those, are all your stories police stories? Or no, do you no, write actually, about other stuff? Uh, probably half of the stories are crime related, but uh, I think only one of them is, uh, is actually a police story. Um, it's based upon a, a really bad tour my partner, uh, Tommy McPartland, and I had. Up in the heights. It's all one um, day? Well, no. It's actually 26 years later at another cop's funeral discussing uh, I don't have any grets and Patty Dyer, who is a character in this story, says, I wish I could say the same. And uh, he reminds Tommy, his character is Tommy McPhee in the book, mm. reminds him of uh, that horrible... Uh, they actually did a great job and saved somebody's life. Mm-hmm. And because they saved this mutt's life, he turned around and he ended up killing a cop five years later. Wow. Well, yeah. And it's, it basically harkens back to the murder of police officer uh, John Williamson, the housing cop yes, on 173rd Street. It was and that's called... Uh, off the roof, right? 
No, a bucket of spackle. It's uh, the name of that story is no mulligans. Mulligans of uh, do over. Yeah, it's a do over in golf. Uh, there are no there are no mulligans in police work. You don't you know you don't know what you know until you know it, and you can't predict what what you need to know when you need to know it. Uh, but you're competing. I had, you're competing. Uh, when you go out there, it's almost like you're in a competition. You yeah. know what I'm saying? You, you're going to run the best race that you can. You're not always going to win, but you're going to give it 100. percent Yeah. Well, my theory on policing, and I'm very proud of my career because my rule was: do the right thing. Don't show me the book. I don't care about the book. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do the right thing. What's the right thing? What I decide is right. And I stayed true to that. Right. And uh, I didn't have to violate the rule book too much. <laughs> Stretched it a little, maybe. I think but. what's interesting, too, even in your main character, Patty Durr, is the moral compass. Yeah. The, 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 where you start off from and what you believe is right. That never changes. How you react to it or when you do, decide to do the right thing, those things change. But you always know when you're doing the wrong thing. You know mm. when you're doing the right. You know when you have to do the right thing. So, um, and that's, that's, you know, during this interview, I noticed uh, a couple of things. First of all, uh, how much you care. You know what I'm saying? How much all this is, has meant to you, that it's not a joke. You know what I'm saying? That uh, this is a, you know, there's a sensitivity that, that you have to have to be a creative person. You know what I'm saying? Uh, we talked about writing. And there's a lot of cops who may have great stories to tell at a bar, but they're really not a sensitive soul. You know what I'm saying? So they're not going to be able to get it down on paper. As much as they have the stories, they could give them to somebody else. Somebody else could write it. But you need that, that, that basis. You've got to have that sensitivity in your soul, the empathy to understand the other side of it because you've got to tell a, a full story, yeah. not just from your perspective. All the characters in your story have to have their own arc. As yes. small as the characters are, they are living their own lives. And the best writers can show you, even with one or two lines on a small character, exactly who that person is, or at least a good portion of them are. And that's one thing I enjoyed a lot about reading Shot to Pieces, and I'm looking forward to reading the short stories and uh, all the other great titles that you got coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I would just want to say, and um, obviously we're um, semi-new in the podcast business here, this is um, going to be our 10th and 11th episode and, you know, we're trying to build an audience, but we, I hope that cops not just support us, but support you. Because here you are this great cop, and you're trying something different, you know, you're trying, you're trying to write. And it's almost like you need to shove it in their face for them to buy one of your books, you know. I'm like trying to push it well, on. Hey, come on, guys, buy yeah, his yeah, book. Yeah. Support I this have, guy, uh, you know. I do very well in, uh, in police things. I did great. I was at the DEA convention. Got rid of probably close to 80 books. Um, very well received. Obviously, it's it's our story. It's a sure. detective story. Uh, I'm Tomorrow night, as a matter of fact, I'm going to be at the Honor Legion meeting in the Bronx. Uh, I've done a couple of those. I do very well at those. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with respect to the cops, if... I'm we happen to. I just want them if, to buy your book. If we, I know, I understand. <laughs> if we happen to be at the same venue and I'm there, they're very receptive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But everybody's got their life to lead, you know. Yeah, also true. true, when you get a, a couple of cops together and they're busting bulls, maybe yeah. you know, are they going into their pockets? You know, everybody wants something for nothing. I, I just did a gig. Yeah. Um, 
it was a police benefit, a PBA benefit. And the cop shows up there and he's trying to get in. And it's like, oh, you don't understand. All the money's going towards yeah. this yeah. cause yeah. to help, yeah. you know, widow, yeah. Widows and yeah. Children's yeah. Fund. Yeah. Give the freaking 20 yeah. bucks, yeah. get yeah. your free beer, yeah. and, and yeah. buy well, another one. I, I deal with that at these police events. Uh-huh. And, and you usually tell right up, all right, the guy's trying to shake me down for free, yeah, yeah. Yeah, free beer. Yeah. And, I have, and I have to tell him, I'm like, hey, fuck off. Uh-huh. I'm the police. Uh-huh. More the police than you were the police. Uh-huh. The police don't give it away. That's right. Yeah. Go in your pocket or get lost. You're in my way. I and, found then they, like, and then you guilt them and they go reach yeah, yeah, in and yeah. they pull the 20 out. The, the, uh, the positive, I've had nothing, you know, you spend a lot of time on the job scared, especially if you have like a hidden thing like that, the writing thing that, you know, you don't want to, the other guys busting your balls over it. They might take your enthusiasm. It might not be cool. You know what I'm saying? That was never my experience. I actually used to, we used to have informal book clubs in the squad. But that, my, like my point is that that is a misconception. Once you open up about what you like creatively yeah. and you're not scared to tell the guys, yeah. then you'll hear from somebody else. Yeah. It's not so much the job, it's just men in general. Oh, you know yeah. what? I like to do a needlepoint too. You got to check out something <laughs> I got over the house. You know, once. Yeah, no, not needlepoint. Uh, <laughs> but once I got uh, involved, like I got involved in acting early on when I was yeah. in the police department, then I got in, involved in stand up. And uh, through the whole ride, uh, just nothing, nothing but support. Now that yeah. we're doing the podcast, um, and I'm handing out, uh, you know, we got little cards that we give out, yeah. you know, and members of the service, more than enthusiastic, and they line up after my shows. Hey, let me get one of those cards. I want to check out the podcast. And the numbers here are growing. And yeah. uh, we're going to have you back, man. We'd love to have you back and, and uh, be able to help you uh, get the word out on the next couple of books. That and, would be um, awesome. And catch up with you again. And uh, this has been a wonderful experience, man. And I appreciate you sharing your time with us. Yeah, I appreciate you And telling us me. the story. It was fascinating. Yeah, no, it was a great experience for me. It was uh, a lot of fun. This was wonderful, man. Yeah. Bill, uh, any parting words? No, yeah, I mean, I admire him because, I, I mean, I secretly want to be a writer, but I don't think I have the, the talent or maybe I just don't have the ability to attach my ass to the seat for more than an hour at a time. Well, you know one you know? thing about writing, and, you know, obviously he's a more accomplished writer than, than I am, but... The one thing I realized it's you're gonna hate it's such a torturous thing. Yeah. I remember the time you know having to submit my um, this column that I used to write for this magazine. We had a deadline and smashing my head off the wall just because I had a mm. I wasn't done yet and I wasn't ready yet and I wasn't finished or when they when I thought I was finished and they'd send it back to me. It's a real it's it's torture. It's so scary. Because you know how much of it's it's going to take out of your day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know how yeah, many well, times... Your blood and sweat is in the project yeah. already. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know what's yeah. good and you know what's not. And sometimes you don't know if it's good. You thought it was good. You go back to read it. What I, one thing I used to do a lot is I used to write it and then read it the next day. Yeah. Mm. And then... That's, the next day I'm like, that's horrible. Thoughts. Right. That's fucking horrible. Yeah. And I then actually, I start changing uh, things. I actually... Uh, I have an unfair advantage because my wife is phenomenal. I write a chapter or a section of a chapter and she's there to sit down to let me read it to her. And it's my first beta reading. That's I actually great. get to hear my words in my own ears. Mm-hmm. And she listens and she's got a great ear. She doesn't write herself, but she's got a great ear and she's got uh, great ideas. And I get immediate feedback. It's, I call it my first edit. And it's just, my writing has improved demonstrably because of, of Janet's involvement. That's great. So it, and it's very writes, helpful to have an ear that you trust. Stephen yeah. King though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you, I didn't read his book. Stephen King does the same thing. Yeah. His wife's his editor. Oh yeah. 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 Well, yeah he's been with her forever. He did uh, like me, 
Yeah. He did it first, though. Yeah. All of my books are dedicated to my wife. That's great. That's great. So, yeah. No, that's great because uh, that's part of be having a, a companion yeah. for life. It's just that yeah. they have to be somebody that can can help you. Well, in she some actually way. she's actually the one that gave me the kick in the ass that got me to start writing again because for couple of years after I retired, I kept threatening to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> she actually, she ends up going in on uh, one of those uh, shop NBCs or whatever, one of those websites. Yeah. She buys me a laptop and when it comes, she throws it at me Start and says, write the book. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And Shot to Pieces was born a year later. That's, that's awesome, man. So. Thank you for coming in, man. Oh, thank you Mom, for having me. I really appreciate again. it, well, Mike, guys. it's probably been like uh, 25, 30 years since I've seen you. Let's not make it be another 30 years. Okay, right? yeah. yeah we'll we'll get be, to... I'll be in my 90s if I do that, you know. And God willing, we'll all be in our 90s. <laughs> that's right. Collecting that I, I went. Forever. I went three digits. <laughs> All right, there you have it, man. On behalf of uh, Police Off the Cuff, we are uh, end the tour here. End the tour. Bill Cannon, Mark DeMeo. And Michael O'Keefe. And wait, oh, Andrew Steiner. Andrew Steiner, Steiner Behind editor. the Wheels of Steel, Andrew Steiner. One more conservative. He came in here as a leftist. <laughs> He's almost for a conservative by now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.